I, I need to start off by asking a question. Why can't Seattle Seahawks play a normal game for once? That is the question for today's episode of Blinded by Sports on the Canon Park Podcast. This is episode 17 of this rendition of Blinded by Sports. I am your host, D. Cannon Clark himself, Sean Clark. I am joined by the Seahawks fan who has had quite a season to start, Colin Fuchs. Colin, you feeling okay, man? You feeling okay? <sighs> no. Um, <laughs> this, was, this was rough, and obviously we'll, we'll talk about it later, but there, there's no reason the Seahawks should not be 6-0 right now. The, we'll, we'll leave it at that. There's no reason they shouldn't be. Let's get into our topics because we have a lot to talk about today. First off, we obviously start in England because, you know, it's what we do. So Austin Villa, 4-0 to start the season. They were a club that was dominating everyone defensively. They beat Liverpool 7-2. Unfortunately for them, their unbeaten run is over as they lost 1-0 to Leeds United. Colin, what are your thoughts on this match? Uh, this was definitely an interesting match. Just looking at how Leeds United has played all season, this this is definitely a attack-friendly team, uh, especially with the dynamic duo of Costa and Bamford up there. Bamford obviously netting a hat trick. He did it in 19 minutes, all within the span of the second half. Got his first goal in the 55th and then his third goal in the 74th. Uh, but this was a very dominating performance by Leeds United, especially when it came on the, uh, like, on the, like I said, on the offensive front there. Uh, 27 shots in the match with almost nine on target. So not the best conversion rate, but when you get a hat trick from your top striker, that's, that's the ideal outcome, especially against a Aston Villa team who's only now allowed uh, three goal or who is now allowed five goals on the season, at least in the Premier League, which is pretty a pretty outstanding defensive record. Uh, but this was just not a, this was not a good performance from Aston Villa. Not, a, not the same team that we saw take down Liverpool 7-2. Granted, a lot of those goals had some luck behind it as it took deflection. Uh, the big stars in the match for Aston Villa, obviously going to be Jack Grealish, who's just been a menace for them in the midfield. He's been all over. He's been, dicta- he's been dictating the possession. He's getting shots off where he can. Uh, but just Ollie Watkins not being able to pounce on the ball. Uh, again, with Ross Barkley not being able to find the net. Trezeguet really wasn't that great over there on the right wing. Um, he tried to do what he can to free himself up. But this was the Jack Grealish show. This, is, this was all he wanted to do. He just really couldn't find that final pass. Couldn't end up getting past uh, the goalkeeper, uh, Meslier. So this was just a dominating performance by Leeds United. This is something to help, you know, get them up in the rankings a little bit more, which is, you know, ideal for them. So let's see what they can continue to do, continue to build some confidence confidence in that attack, because Bamford isn't a bad striker by any means. He's able to control possession in the box pretty well. He's good with both of his feet. Uh, And like I said, a hat trick in 19 minutes is nothing nothing to shake a finger at either. So good job to Leeds United. Aston Villa's got to clean up the defense because this is three goals after you've been able to stuff out some other potent attacks. I mean, you're going to let two goals come from Liverpool, but then let Leeds United score three on you. Come on. That's, that's not acceptable. And I know the Aston Villa clubhouse is looking, looking at them scratching their heads a little bit as to what happened in this match. Your, your analysis was spot on. I apologize for saying one nil. I meant to say three nil read my notes wrong. My bad, but Leeds United is legit. 
their first club, the, their first match this season, they lost 4-3 to Liverpool. Yeah, they scored three. They dropped three goals on Liverpool in their first game of the season, which that's was insane. Healthy, that's with a healthy Van Dyke in it, too. <laughs> that's with a healthy Van Dyke, exactly. And then they also draw with Manchester City. Now, while Manchester City has had their struggles this season, that is still an impressive result. And then to beat Austin Villa like this is nothing to sneeze at. And I think that Leeds going forward will be a tough out no matter who they play. Like, like we established after the Van Dyke injury, the Premier League title race is wide open this season. And Leeds United could enter the chats if they start to, to pick up some wins going forward, especially against some especially against some lesser foes. I'm interested to see I'm interested to see what the, what they do going forward. They're, they're, they're a club that can score in bunches, but they also can win gritty defensive battles too. Their next opponent is Leicester City. It's a very intriguing match that will take place on Monday. Especially when you have two two front men like you know Patrick Bamford and Jamie Vardy who are going to be asking for the ball a bunch. Uh, Leeds has to clean up the defense. So, I mean, you only have a three-goal difference and you've played six matches. You've got to clean that up. Yeah, you got you absolutely got to clean that up. It was it was a very it was a very insane re- result from Leeds United. I mean, we maybe expected Leeds to beat Austinville, but not three to nothing. And Patrick Bamford, that was his breakout performance. He is now a household name in the English Premier League. And and to think, and to think Chelsea let him go. He was a Chelsea prospect. <laughs> I I feel like it's a broken record saying this because obviously we know the two most famous one, which are Mo Salah and Kevin De Bruyne, which are probably the two best players in the Premier League those two in Van Dyke. So good job, Chelsea. Now transition to another Premier League match mentioned Leicester city. So they won their match this past weekend and they beat Arsenal. Now we we always find a way for you to talk Arsenal, Sean. (laughs) I try not to every week, but I have to this week because I was watching this match at the same time as the Patriots were getting railroaded by the 49ers. We'll get to that later. So that was a very painful time for me. I was, I was not very happy during that time. Now, I, I, I got to talk about this match for one reason. Where is the creativity? Where, where, where to go? Where, where, where to go? I, I am looking for it. I, I cannot find it. Look, Arsenal has made improvements. They have improved on the wing, although Willian has not looked very good since his debut where he had three assists. The back line is still very solid but it's still improving. Backline is solid. They have improved that. The midfield does look better. But for the love of God, where is the playmaker? I swear, Arsenal is basically Everton last year. That's what they are. They, they are what Everton was a year ago. A club that has a solid backline, decent midfield. They have a good striker, but they can't score. They don't have a playmaker. Man, I wish Arsenal had Hamas Rodriguez because, uh, yeah, Arsenal has no creativity. I'm gonna. This is the best way to sum up how terrible off Arsenal's attack has been this season. Hungmin Son has just as many goals as Arsenal does this season. Th- that's bad. Like we are six matches into the season, you should not be saying that about a player versus the club, especially a club like Arsenal. Improvements are being made, and Arteta is still the right man for the job, but. For Pete's sake, we got to get a playmaker. This is this is unacceptable. 
I and I said this at halftime. I also saw a tweet that confirmed this too. Arsenal had so many chances that the, that they bottled in the first half. They had there was an offsides on Granny Jocka. What are you doing? What like Jocka? Get 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 back! Get back! But I I said this along with the tweet I saw. Arsenal is is not going to convert any of their chances, and Vardy's going to get subbed on the second half, and he's going to score the winning goal. And what do you think happens? Exactly that. When when Vardy scored the goal, I just thought I, I told you, I, I I literally told you this the, this was exactly what's going to happen. Arsenal's going to bottle their chances, and then Vardy because Vardy didn't play in the first half, subbed on the second half, and he scored easily. Really, guys? Really? This is the this, this, uh, I the fact that I saw this coming is bad. The fact that I knew exactly how this match was going to play out is really concerning. Arsenal needs a playmaker, or else they're going to end up twelfth like Everton did last year. And I know we're about to talk about Everton in a sec, but hmm, Everton's looking pretty good with the playmaker, aren't they? Hmm. Gee, I wonder what having a playmaker does. It's like Arsenal just needs that number ten. Where could we possibly get a number? Oh, wait, you had one for years and you don't even play him anymore? I was oh. going to say, you, ha- you have one on your bench. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can't even I can't even tell you. The, the last time Mesut also played was March 8th against West Ham United when he actually had the game-winning assist to Alexandre Lacazette. because that's, that's the last match he played for Arsenal. Really? 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 I hate this club. I hate him. This is pain. <laughs> Sean's in Spain right now without the S. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but Arsenal, yeah, the, that's what they're missing is they're missing a playmaker. It's not like they're, they're lacking goal scorers. You mentioned it yourself, Alexander Lacassette and then Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Obviously, you could even put Pepe up there in conversation. But you don't have a, you don't have a playmaker. You don't have someone that's coming out of the middle demanding the ball. Uh, yet you could have that up top, but that's not going to change anything. You need to have someone in the center of the pitch for you, dictating passes, dictating the flow of the match, and making uh, the defense think of any other any other club that you might face, but especially a club like Leicester City who can score on you in an instant. Because uh, Jamie Vardy's obviously one of the top five strikers in the Premier League, and, I mean, that's that's not even up for debate. He's, he's, he's a potent striker. It's what he does best. Uh, but... Arsenal, you need that playmaker. I don't know what your what happened with Mesut Ozil, what your relationship status is with it, and why it's it's complicated on Facebook. But you really need to get it figured out because without a playmaker, Arsenal, you're sitting right now out of the top ten, and that's not acceptable if you're a club like the Gunners are. And then, Sean, I know it pains you. I know you don't want to hear that, uh, but yeah, you're sitting out of the top ten. But let's talk Everton. I know you want to talk Everton, Sean. Yeah, Everton currently sits first place but took their first loss of the season against a club that I don't think many would have put their money on to beat them. We're talking Southampton here, uh, especially on a 2-0 loss here, Sean. What is your thoughts of Everton receiving their first loss, not to, you know, a Liverpool, not to a Man City, but to Southampton? All right. I promise I am not making this up, but I actually saw this coming. I'm actually not surprised that this happened. First of all, the match was at Southampton, so I immediately thought, okay, they may have a shot here. But Southampton is a very solid team. I may write about them in the future because 
this they're actually looking pretty good this season. They they're they're in Europa League spot in the Premier League table right now. And if you look at, at their last few matches, they, they were crushed 5-2 by Tottenham. But since then, they beat Burnley 1-0 on the road, which is not a bad result. They beat West Bromwich 2-0. They drew with Chelsea 3-3. Holy cow, that match was insane. And a spectacular comeback. Yes. And then they beat Everton 2-0. Danny Ings is also, I think he is just as good, if not right now, better than Jamie Vardy. Right now. Because Ings just is an absolute stud in finding the net. He, he just has this knack for a great goal-scoring ability. It's so fun to watch. Kyle Walker-Peters has been a fine addition to this squad. James Ward-Prowse had a fantastic, fantastic goal. They have solid pieces on their roster. And with, and I, and with Kyle Walker-Peters and other other players on the club they're producing and Southampton is actually playing much more loose than we're used to seeing this is a club that is a bit dangerous and like I said the Premier League's wide open there's no juggernaut this season there isn't so this further emphasizes how wide open the the Premier League table is because Southampton looks good I think this is more about Southampton looking good than Everton looking bad now, Jordan Pickford did struggle, and Everton couldn't create the chances needed to score. But Southampton played well. They deserve to win. Everton was going to lose eventually. I mean, their back line was a bit exposed by Liverpool, so I did expect them to lose. Everton needs to regroup because, like I said last week, their back line was very iffy. And their next match is against Newcastle, which could be very intriguing to see how that goes especially when Newcastle's uh, midfield is looking a little bit more comfortable. But yeah, you mentioned it yourself. The back line itself is a little shaky. And this is now the second week in a row that we've talked about Jordan Pickford not being at his top game. And that's not acceptable, especially when you know, you're still fighting to be England's number one goalkeeper. He's been in the sticks now for England match after match, especially in the World Cup. He was pretty vital for them. Uh, but I love that you, know, you, mentioned even, you mentioned Danny Ings and stuff like that. Because if you look at his previous career, especially he started with Burnley back in 2014. He only had 11 goals in 35 matches. And then he moved on into Liverpool U23s and into Liverpool. In 2015-2016, uh, he had two goals. And then he only had one goal. It really wasn't until he came to Southampton that he started to break out. And it hasn't even been until these last two seasons. Because his 2018-2019 season and his 24 matches, he scored seven goals. But then last season, he scored 22 and now he's back here playing six matches and four goals. So Danny Ings is clear, clearly finding his stride, clearly getting his comfort. And yes, he didn't get a goal in this match, but that doesn't mean he wasn't involved because if it wasn't for the crosses that he put in for Che Adams' goal in the 35th minute, it's not a 2-0 game. James Ward-Prowse obviously jumped on top of a relatively easy cross. And just it was the Everton back line looking shaky. Jay, uh, James Rodriguez looked great, obviously, for Everton doing what he can. Calvert-Lewin kind of was getting shut down by Southampton. He wasn't getting the same chances. Uh, but yeah, you, you mentioned it yourself, Sean. This was more of a Southampton strong win than this was a disappointing loss for Everton. This, this, wasn't, this isn't the same dominant team that we saw out of Liverpool that we were shocked to see lose. This is an Everton club that they look good. 
but this wasn't anywhere near, you know, a Man City, uh, former Man City dominant club. This wasn't a Liverpool dominant club that we were shocked to see lose. Everton, we knew it was coming eventually. I didn't think it would happen this early on, but I knew it would happen. So kudos to Southampton, um, especially with their upcoming schedule. They've got some favorable matchups to keep themselves up there uh, in at least that top six in that top six spot. Uh, so good for them. Good for them to, you know, find some confidence up there. Danny Ings, I hope he continues to just tear, tear the league up. Absolutely. It's nice to see Southampton up there. Someone, someone, someone new to talk about. Let's move on. Let's skip across the pond and let's talk about the MLS. So we are approaching the playoffs, which will happen in a few weeks. And look forward to Colin Fuchs' coverage of those playoffs. Be, you know, a resident MLS expert. This is this is what he lives for, the MLS. So the question is presented as we head in the playoffs. All right, Mr. MLS expert, who is the favorite out of each conference? All right. So obviously, you and I, Sean, we've mentioned our favorites over the um, past couple months, whether it be out east and out west. Uh, let's start with the West. I'm going to start with obviously a no shock here. Who's going to be in the MLS cup final, but the Portland Timbers. Yes. That's Whoa! what I said. I know. I know. I want, I wanted to shock you there. I wanted to, I wanted to leave a spot. The Portland Timbers depth, the Portland Timbers midfield, the Portland Timbers attack. They, I think have the best equipped team to make an MLS Cup playoff run. And the only reason I say Seattle, obviously it pains me not to say Seattle, but if you look at the streak they've been on with no Gustav Svensson, no uh, Javier Arriaga, no Raul Rui Diaz, um, you're losing some key players, especially in that starting 11, that make this team tick, that really allow for this ability for them to be a scoring threat Will Bruin just got his first goal and out of his last four games of starting since Raul Rui Diaz is not only now on COVID protocol on shutdown, but since he went off to Peru um, to go play for their national team. And so this is why Will Bruin's not the same striker that he was just a couple seasons ago, or even last season when he netted over 10 goals for Seattle being that backup. He got his first, he had one goal in the MLS cup playoffs and now he has one goal in the MLS regular season. That's not going to do it, especially in a team like Portland, who's figuring yourself out, which we obviously saw the exciting 1-0 draw for myself as a Sounders fan, or 1-1 draw um, as a Sounders fan in Portland, which was, uh, or in Seattle, sorry, which was desperately needed. But obviously Portland dominated the game, especially they have some X factors that really a lot of other clubs out West don't have. You look at Sporting Kansas City that is currently sitting on top of the West right now, but they've got their Alan Polito. They've got their Johnny Russell. They even got Jerso Fernandez. But those are really their big three over there. Other than that, they don't really have any names that stand out. But you look at this whole stacked Portland Timbers lineup. Obviously, Jeremy Abobas, he's out with an injury. He will be back. But who covers for him? Felipe Mora. On top of that, they've got Cisniega. They've got Diego Valeri, who's one of the best mid, who's been one of the best consistent midfielders year after year. You've got Diego Chara, who's one of the best defensive set, uh, defensive midfielders. He's got his brother, Yimmy Chara, out there. And then Steve Clark, who's been proven not only to play for Columbus Crew in their uh, loss to the Portland Timbers back in the, I want to say, was that the 2015? No, 
it was something 2013 MLS Cup, I think, like that. Um, when he played for them, yeah, 2015, I was right, 2015 MLS Cup, uh, the 2 1 loss to the Portland Timbers, but he's still proven to come up big for this club now that he plays with Portland. So they've really got a solid club all around. And the reason, like I said, Seattle doesn't have that is because we've seen some mishaps coming out of that front three. Jordan Morris is not being as big of a threat on that left side. And I think it's because Nico Lodero is asking for too much of the game at this point. And he really needs to back off a little bit more. And I know that's hard because he's been one of the MLS assist leaders since he's come into the league in 2016. But he really needs to back off let the game come to him because when he allows Jao Paulo to get into the attack, we've even seen, I think knew who was the biggest was probably if there was a, you know, man of the match that wasn't Will Bruin because he scored knew who could have been that because he was spectacular on that left wing against Portland. Um, but let the game come to Seattle, Portland. I wouldn't be shocked to see them out East. I'm really torn in between saying either Toronto again. Yes, they could do it again just simply because of their playoff experience or the Philadelphia Union who just trounced Toronto 5-0. Um, I know, Sean, you're giving me the thumbs up. Uh, my Philly team is sitting on top of the East right now. Um, just you know, letting you know that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sean's you know, Columbus crew has fallen in the third. Uh, but, I mean, after – you know, Philly playing against Toronto. This is the matchups we wanted to see out of Toronto after they've only been playing Vancouver and Montreal out in the East because of, you know, the Canada lines and things like that. Uh, Philly looked good, especially, you know, you've got Montero, you've got Sergio Santos, you've got Casper Shabelko, you've got, uh, you know, you have so many options for this club. And I know you're showing you're getting tired, but you know I'm right. You can't even deny that I'm right. <laughs> because without Lucas Celerayan or Giancy's artist dictating the game, Columbus crew doesn't have anything. Oh, that's all I have to say on that. So I predict, yes, the Portland Timbers and the Philadelphia Union will make the MLS Cup final. Wow. Yeah, so it pains me to say. The Sounders fan picking the Timbers above the Sounders. What is this world come to? Sean, as a sportsman, as someone, you know, who wants to start a career in this, I can't be biased all the time. I do have to <laughs> pick the viable option at a certain point. Uh, I know. All right. Here's the deal. Out East, it has to be Toronto FC. Now, Columbus is still ab above Philly because Philly is, does not prove themselves on the, on the big level. And there's a good reason why. I mean, look what they did against Portland in the MLS's back tournament. They just they they, they just choked epically. They they do not play big time. As as good as they proved to be in the in the regular season, playoff time, they they don't do anything. And until they prove otherwise, I am not going to believe in them. Yes, Colin, they may be above Columbus right now, but wait till Columbus beats them in the playoffs. Because I am very sure that's going to happen. But Toronto is the best club. I understand that Philly beat them 5-0, which is a very typical Philly thing to do in the regular season. And then playoff time, you, you know what happens. You know what happens. You're, you're the MLS guy. You know exactly what happens. But this Toronto club is very loaded. Alejandro Pozuelo is really broke out last season. And this season he is really... Just, just taking this club by storm. He, had, he, he leads with eight goals on the season. When you have a one-game elimination format like the MLS does, 
you need that playmaker to take you over the top. Oh, and what did Toronto do last year, by the way? Uh, oh, wait a second. They, they, they scored four goals in extra time. They, oh, Pozuelo scored the winning goal against NYCFC. Oh, yeah, that's right. He did do that. And then Toronto beat Atlanta before getting crushed by the Seattle Sounders in the MLS Cup final. Colin's very happy. But yeah, I, I, I think that when it, when I look at Toronto, they have the playmaking. Well, Philly maybe is more loaded elsewhere. I choose playmaking over a well-rounded roster. Look at Everton and Arsenal. There you go. So Toronto, fear in the East. All right, fear in the West. I can't believe I'm the one that's saying this, but I'm sorry. It's still the Sounders. Plain and simple. Here's the thing about the Sounders. They struggle in the regular season. Plain and simple, they struggle in the regular season. They had a lot of struggles last year in the regular season. I remember during the summer, they really struggled to win games, especially when international play was going on. And as you know, Seattle has long stretches of bad play and good play in the regular season. You know this. And, but come playoff time, Seattle always seems to turn on. Now, they couldn't in 2018 because, well, they were injured. Hardcore and Portland was unbeatable in the Western Conference and still the greatest MLS game I have seen to date. Sorry, Colin. I know that was painful. But Seattle has too much playmaking. They are going to get healthier. You mentioned a lot of key players out there. They are going to get healthier. And I think once come playoff time, that they have the coaching to adjust. And I just don't see their playmaking being shut down in the playoffs. I just don't see that happening. So, yes, I think for the fourth time in five years, we're going to have Seattle versus Toronto. Original, I know, but that's just what I think. So original, indeed. Let's transition from football to football. All right, Colin, let it out. Seahawks lost to the Cardinals 37-34 to 34 in overtime in the wildest game of the 2020 NFL season. This is the game of the year. No one is denying that. Everyone is saying that. It is absolutely true. Colin, floor is yours. Thoughts? I really want to hear this. Imposing myself for those of you. Because, I mean, obviously you can't visibly see me right now. Good. All right. How do you lose a game when you're up by 10? You have the league leading. No doubt about it. League MVP and Russell Wilson. You have a wide receiver that goes off for three touchdowns, a hat trick of touchdowns. You beat Patrick Peterson once. You beat him twice. You let your big man go down after a 90-yard sprint on almost a pick six. And then you stopped them. So they have to settle for a field goal. And then what do you do? You have five minutes left. You know, why not? Let's 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 back up a little bit. Let's play cover three and then not man mark on two of the greatest receivers in the NFL, DeAndre Hopkins and Larry Fitzgerald. And let's let a mobile quarterback like Kyler Murray dictate the game, run how he pleases, put a spy on him and not let it work. Let your defense crap the bed like an alien hospice patient <sighs> oh, wow. uh, for all of the for those of you who um think that was scripted uh no no i don't have any of that in my notes all of that was from the heart uh everything that i just gave i apologize for those of you who are headphone users um 
That is how I feel. How do you let, how do you let Zane Gonzalez, who missed an overtime field goal, and then let your team take over? Russell Wilson, you can't allow yourself to throw three interceptions in this game. You can't let yourself. You can't let Pete Carroll and – sorry, Kent – I won't say Pete Carroll. Ken Norton got outcoached, and it wasn't even close. Especially that, that defense – I will say that beautiful cover zero that Arizona played to make it look like an all-out blitz. And then, no, what do they do? They drop back, and they only send four, and they still get the pick. I don't <sighs> – Seahawks should be 6-0, and but they're not. This was the game of the year. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are you okay, man? Like, I thought no. I rented. Like, that was another level. Like, like you were comparing the Seahawks defense to a hospice. Oh, uh, my. An, an alien hospice patient. And for those of you who have alien parents or grandparents, I do apologize. <laughs> uh, this, this was just pure frustration. <laughs> I understand. Thank you for the apology. I think that'll make people feel better, but yeah. Um, okay. How do I follow that? Well, <laughs> I'm not the Seahawks fan. So, I mean, obviously you were still being objective even, but with some, what's with your emotion thrown there, here's what I'll say as someone who was just sitting back and enjoying the utter chaos. That was this game. Yeah. This was the game of the year. There were so many big plays in this game. DK Metcalf chasing down Buda Baker is the play of the year, plain and simple. Buda Baker is one of the fastest players in the NFL and DK Metcalf outran him by one mile per hour and chased him down. That's insane. It reminded me of when Benjamin Watson chased down Champ Bailey in the 2005 divisional playoff game between the Patriots and the Broncos, saving a pick six. However, the refs got it wrong because Benjamin Watson knocked the ball at the end. So that should have been a touchback, not first and goal for the Broncos. That was completely stupid. But anyways, yeah, DK Metcalf, phenomenal play. Tyler Lockett, who was on my fantasy team yesterday, so that was great had just went off he his speed just killed the arizona defense and russell wilson found him there's those two's chemistry is fantastic but you gotta be kidding me how do you pull i hate tissue soft defense i hate it i hate it i i can't tell you how much i hate soft defense it's why i love the tampa bay buccaneers secondary now because they play aggressive they play right on you they're not afraid to cover you and be aggressive it's why I think the Buccaneers are the best team in the NFC right now because their secondary actually is competent. How do you let the Cardinals score 10 points in the last two and a half minutes? Also, really, Russell Wilson, you're not helping your MVP case with three interceptions in this game. Come on, man. You're not, you're not helping your MVP case, all right? I think, you, I think he still is the MVP just because Patrick Mahomes has been kind of sidelined the last couple of games. He's, Clyde Edwards-Solaire has been doing the bulk of the work. But, yeah. Three interceptions is not good. Hey, Isaiah Simmons signing for the Arizona Cardinals. No one had no one had seen him all year. Then he makes the biggest play of the game. Like, okay, where, where was this before that? But here are my two takeaways from this game. Number one, good God, Seahawks need Jamal Adams back so badly. It's not funny. He's been out since week three with an injury, and they need him back badly because their defense is looking as bad as they did when Devontae Adams torched them in the divisional playoff last season. My other takeaway is, yeah, Cardinals are good. The Cardinals are good. They they lucked out by being by playing a Dallas Dallas Cowboys team on Monday Night Football, and then they were able to play the Seahawks and win 
in, in such a phenomenal game. And Kyler Murray made clutch play after clutch play. And while Kenyon Drake is going to be out, I think Chase Edmonds being the lead back is going to work out well for them. I like that Chase Edmonds is now the feature back because he really blames a lot of explosivity. And with DeAndre Hopkins, this, this Cardinals offense is very lethal and their defense did make necessary plays. They picked up Russell Wilson three times. It's a very good sign going forward. I'm very, the Cardinals sit at five and two, which is very good considering that the NFC West is loaded. The Seahawks are the Seahawks are five and one. The Rams are five and two. The Cardinals are five and two. And the 49ers I are unfortunately four and three after beating the Patriots this past week. And the Cardinals are heading to their bye week with a lot of momentum. And they look really good going forward. And they play the Miami Dolphins after their bye week. So I, I expect them to get the win there, go to six and two. This is a good Cardinals team. They, they went toe-to-toe with Seattle. Respect to them. What a great game of NFL football. Yeah, Seattle Seattle just needs a pass rusher. Just one. That's all they need because they can't get any pressure on any quarterback whatsoever. No. All right. All right, Colin. Sean. Let, let's uh let's let's just pick the scab. Let's just let's just touch the wound. Obviously, you talked about the NFC West being as stacked as it is. Um, you know, the Patriots just took on a familiar foe and uh, you know, the or I won't say familiar foe, but a familiar player, Jimmy Garoppolo, took on the San Francisco 49ers this last week, uh, the former protege to Tom Brady himself. Uh, yeah, this uh, this is not Bill Belichick teams that we are used to say to used to seeing by any means, especially in a blowout such as this. Uh, 33 to 6, Sean, and the New England Patriots who normally don't have starts like this, especially with a new quarterback in Cam Newton, who threw three picks on the night, and then uh, Jared Stidham came in and threw another interception. Uh, two and four on the season. Sit third place in the division. Yeah. Sean, uh, I know you've probably been holding in your frustration here. Uh, the floor is yours. All right. I just got one thing to say. I told you all this was going to happen. The second Cam Newton signed, I told everyone I don't like it. Why? Because the Patriots were going to be mediocre. Cam Newton was coming off two serious injuries. Did you really expect him to have an MVP form the entire season? No. Did you expect the Patriots to have a roster that could support him? No. I told you all this wasn't going to work, and it's not working. His throwing mechanics are off. The Patriots receivers are slow as molasses. And molasses is stagnant. June Edelman can't catch a pass anymore. The, the defense doesn't know how to doesn't know how to stop anyone that has creative play calling. I told you this was gonna happen, but no, no one, everyone's like, oh Cam Newton, oh, this could be really good. You gotta have faith. Oh, Cam Newton can have every every people stop. I think I know what I'm talking about when it comes to my favorite team. Okay. The, the, the Patriots roster is not good. It isn't. This is one of the worst rosters talent wise in the league. Their depth is shoddy. They don't really have playmakers. All they have is Stephon Gilmore, who I think is a very overrated corner. He 
He is very soft and he gets burned time and time again by the best receivers, even though he's supposedly defensive player of the year. Stop. That was a bogus reward last year. The San Francisco 49ers actually have creativity. They have weapons, even though they're injured. They have good play calling. They have good play design. You know what? They don't run the same thing every other play. Oh my gosh, what a concept. Creative play calling using the playbook. Whoa, what a concept here. This is, this, this is, this is very painful. The Patriots were not competitive in this match. At least against the Denver Broncos, they were in the game because their defense did some good things. They got ran out of the building by San Francisco. San Francisco came in there and made it look easy. It's, it was embarrassing. It was disgusting. Now, Cam Newton, now one argument that I've seen is that Cam Newton is still recovering from COVID, which is definitely fair. But at the same time, though, that doesn't, COVID doesn't have much to do with your shoulder or your throwing motion, which still looks off. I get Cam Newton may still be recovering and maybe he'll be better, but regardless, told you this was going to happen. The Patriots are going to be very mediocre. If you're just if, if Cam Newton was going to play mediocre, just 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 have Jared Stidham play the entire season and don't sign Cam Newton. I would have liked Jared Stidham to just start the, the season. The Patriots would be currently zero and six if that were the case, or I'll go one and five. I think they would be in the Dolphins week one because the defense won that game single handedly, and. Patriots would be in contention for a high draft pick, but no, the Patriots are probably going to end up around six and 10, five and 11. And they're, and they're going to have to trade the form to get a top QB prospect or another great prospect. No, they, they can draft well, but they're not the best drafting team, especially in the higher rounds. It's like I told everyone this was going to happen, but no, I I was told that he was going to return his parent, return his MVP form. No, he's not. Sorry. This is, he doesn't play the Seahawks defense every single week, okay? I'm sorry. It's, 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 not, the, it's not the case. I told you all this was going to happen. I'm not surprised. I'm just – it's just like Arsenal. I'm just, I'm just defeated. At least I had the – You just, you just le- hurt. <laughs> yes, at least I had the Denver Nuggets last month because that was awesome. At least I had that. That was great. Patriots and Arsenal have been pain right now. And unfortunately, Sean, I wish I could say things get easier, but your schedule doesn't look much, much better over the next couple of weeks. You got the Bills and you got, you know, the Monday night showdown against the New York Jets. Whoopie-doo. Uh, then you got Baltimore and then Houston and then Arizona. Um not not favorable. Maybe I mean the Jets are probably your, obviously going to be your best look. Um, we'll beat the Texans probably, but even yeah. then I don't know. But he, yeah, but even if you have to second guess, it's it's just not favorable. Yeah, the how do you let a quarterback? Granted, Jimmy Garoppolo went twenty for twenty five and had almost three hundred yards, but he threw two picks. He didn't have a single touchdown on you. You're gonna let the running back. You're gonna let Jeffrey Wilson go off for over 110 yards and have three touchdowns on you. Are you going to let you get a touchdown on you? I mean, there's this, uh, how do you let a quarterback who had two interceptions? Yes. He was moving the ball downfield, but even still two interceptions, Cam Newton, not good. Three interceptions for 98 yards on the game. Come on. Like that's just, I, we all knew he wasn't going to be MVP. We all knew he's had two terrible injuries. Uh, he had COVID, which is, 
affecting the nation as we know it. But this is just, ugh. I, I, I hurt for you, Sean. You've obviously had so many, you've had decades of success being a Patriots fan. You've done nothing but the highs. Uh, and now, unfortunately, it's time to, time to feel those excruciating lows. The thing is, I, would, I, I am fine with rebuilding, but at least try to rebuild. I, mediocrity is very frustrating. I'm fine with being terrible and rebuilding. I'm fine with it. Just don't be mediocre because that's terrible. And, and yes, I have had a lot of success with the Patriots. I, I will admit I am slow with the Patriots, but most of my other favorite teams in sports have not exactly given me a lot of, a lot of success either. So yeah, you and I, Sean, being Seattle slash Denver slash New England fans, it, uh, we, we know the highs and lows. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, you have the Sounders. They have given you a bunch of highs. Seahawks gave you 43 to 8. But, uh, baseball. We have the same favorite baseball team, so yikes. Yeah. All right, let's move on to what arguably, Sean, you and I pick. Uh, game of the week. Uh, big battle here. You know, you got the Pittsburgh Steelers. You got the Tennessee Titans. Uh, break it down. How did this game shape up, and did it, did it go the way you anticipated it? No, it didn't. I am surprised how this game turned out. The Pittsburgh Steelers defeated the Tennessee Titans in a battle of unbeatens, 27-24, but not without some insane late-game drama. Steven Goskowski missed a game-tying field goal attempt, and the Steelers held on. Now, looking at the stats here, I got to bring this up. One stat is all that matters in this game. I don't need to break anything else down. I really don't because only one stat mattered. The Pittsburgh Steelers were 13 of 18 on third downs. 13 of 18. I'm no math. I'm no math wizard, but 13 of 18 is pretty good. That is 72%. That's three fourths about of your third down conversions. Really? Really? You also allowed four third down conversions on on the Steelers' uh, drive to try to steal it. Yes, Ben did throw a pick on that drive, but they burned about five minutes off the clock, which meant that Ryan Tannehill, a quarterback that is used to chunk plays and not having to go deep, had to scramble. And because of the Steelers' pass rush, intentional grounding killed the drive, which led to the field goal miss. Third down. Steelers converted third downs. Titans didn't stop them. And if the Titans continue to be the, th- the worst third down defense in the NFL, that's going to be very problematic for them going forward. They got to get off the field. To me, nothing else matters. Third down won this game single-handedly. Kudos to Pittsburgh for converting all those third downs. But Tennessee, you got to stop them. You can't. You can't keep being on the field after every third down. 13 third down conversions. That's that's brutal, man. Yeah, especially when, you know, you got Big Ben throwing three picks on the game. Yeah, he had two touchdowns, but he had three picks as well. But I think another, you know, you mentioned third down efficiency. I would almost argue that another big thing here that was huge for Pittsburgh, they had almost 13 minutes more of possession time in the game. 
They had 36 and a half minutes of the ball. If you keep the ball out of Derrick Henry's hands, of course you're going to win a game. And that's exactly what they did when you can get almost a whole quarter's worth of football on possession time, which is just ridiculous. So, yeah, um, Pittsburgh obviously deserved the win. Uh, Congratulations to them. Ryan Tannehill did what he could. You know, like you said, he's a chunk player. He's not a – He's not a deep ball thrower. It's not what he does best. Um, yeah, and then, you know, Derrick Henry only held to 75 yards and a touchdown, which kudos kudos to the Pittsburgh defense, which solid defense this year. I mean, we've talked about it a couple of times so far this season. Uh, yeah, congratulations to Pittsburgh. 6-0. and Good for them. Uh, this is a very dominant team, especially out in the AFC. Uh, definitely need to continue on this path as they've – uh, they've got some more. They've got a strong matchup again against the Baltimore next Sunday, and then they've got Dallas the following week. So, curious to see how how those two games play out. But kudos to Pittsburgh holding on to win a game by three. Well, they're gonna take the cow. They're gonna take the Cowboys to the woodshed. But oh, the absolutely. Ravens game, I can't wait to see. That'll be fun. Oh yeah. All right, that's gonna do it for an exhausting and emotional episode. A blinded by sports on the Canna Clark podcast. Be sure to check out Canna Clark Spotify, KJAC Sports Spotify, and thecannaclark.com. Colin Fuchs is is having an article about the MLS being a retirement league and the transition away from that upcoming. So be sure to check that out. Colin has a lot of great stuff when it comes to MLS. So be sure to check that out. That should come out around this Friday or so. Whenever this whenever this is published for Colin Fuchs. I am your host, the Ken Clark himself, Sean Clark. Have a great rest of your day. See you in the next segment for Ahead of the Count with Johnny Crane. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, we had a week hiatus, but, you know, work gets in the way. Stuff gets in the way. It happens, but no matter, no fret, we're back. I am your host, Johnny Crane. This is episode 14 of Ahead of the Count. I am your host this afternoon slash evening, whenever you're watching, joined by my co-host, Sean Clark. Sean, buddy, I see you have a hoodie on. I know you told me it isn't cold, but how are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah, bundled up in my apartment because my roommate wanted to make this a refrigerator apartment. But hey, that hey, I sleep really well, so that's good. Hey, we, we had a snow game in the NFL, so it is starting to become that time of year. The, the, December football is the best time of the year, and we are approaching it. We got a little tease this weekend, so I'm doing well. Let's get into this. Yes, there was a snow game in the Kansas City Chiefs Broncos game. Let me tell you, it snowed here in Montrose too. It was five degrees going to work. It sucked cleaning off the truck. It sucked unplugging the truck and driving in the snow. But whatever. Let's get into some uh, sports, shall we? So, Cameron might be crying and tears of joy later tonight depending on when you watch this game six of the world series is tonight the dodgers will face the tampa bay rays but before we even talk about that game we have to talk about the two previous games so game four boy oh boy was it the collapse if there ever was one los angeles dodgers had the lead going into the ninth inning and then a double error led to the rays walking off the dodgers eight runs to seven sean Let's start with you. Take me through this game. Take me through that inning. What do you think of that game overall? Well, what an insane classic that was. The lead changed hands 
over five different times. The Dodgers had the lead four different times, and they lost the lead every single time. They were up seven to six in the bottom of the ninth. More part of the reason why it was so close is because, for some reason, Dave Roberts decided to leave in Pedro Baez, and he gave up three runs. Great job, Dave Roberts. In the bottom of the ninth, we saw the Rays have runners on first and second. Uh, Kiermaier in Arroz Arena were on base. Brett Phillips was at to, up to bat. And what proceeded was one of the craziest plays that this generation of baseball fans have ever seen. Phillips hit hit a, a line drive shot to center field, center field to Chris Taylor, who was in center field because Cody Bellinger arm was hurting and he was on the DH. Taylor bobbles it, almost Trent Grisham's it, but he bobbles it. Kiermaier scores. And Rose Arena goes the home plate. He stumbles, which, what are you doing, Rose Arena? But that doesn't matter because it, Max Muncy catches the ball near the pitcher's mound, and he throws it home, but Will Smith takes his eyes off the ball. And Kenley Jansen just stands there, doesn't cover home, home base, and despite Rose Arena stumbling, he dives the home plate, there's no contest, con contesting at the plate. The, the Rays win in one of the most insane walk-offs you will ever see. I have watched this play about 30 times. Now, I just got to quickly say this. We all give Joe Buck a lot of hate and criticism. He's one of the most disliked play-by-play -play announcers that's like mainstream. But I'll tell you what, his call was exceptional on this play. I, everything about it was great. So I got to say that because I love listening to his call on that play. But the, the, fact that the, the fact that the Rays won this way just shows how gritty of a team they are. They won game two, but game four was the game they were supposed to lose. And they pulled it out. It was insane. Chris Taylor, what are you doing? Kenley, even more, what are you doing? And Will Smith, the ultimate, what are you doing? It's just like in football. Secure the ball and then make your move. You can't do anything without the ball. Simple as that. When I look at that final play, and I've watched it, like I said, 30 times, Will Smith deserves the majority of the blame. You can't take your eyes off the ball. Plain and simple. We're talking about majority of blame for this play, but I'm going to rewind the clocks to the sixth inning. So Brendan Lau hit a three-run shot off of Pedro Baez. The following inning, the Dodgers come back. They score a run. They tie. They actually overtake the Rays for the lead again. Now, here's my problem. So before we even get to the ninth inning drama, Dave Roberts told Pedro Baez after that three-run shot he gave up, that he was done. He was done with the game. He was not going to pitch in the following inning. But then Dave Roberts pulled a psych, and he told Pedro Baez, actually, you're going back out there, even though I already told you you weren't going to pitch. And what does Pedro Baez do? Remember, the Dodgers are leading 6-5 to five after they did not have the lead the prior half inning when that three-run shot happened. Kevin Kiermaier hit another home run to tie the game up, 6-6. 
looking back at this, before we even look at the ninth inning stuff, to me, it's all about communication. It's all about communication, no matter what you're talking about, but especially it's prevalent between your manager and your pitcher. You telling your reliever he is done after a certain inning, and then you say, wait a minute, wait, I lied. You're going back out there. That destroys the psyche of a pitcher. The pitcher is completely overwhelmed. He's completely unprepared for the inning that's following the inning he already did because he thought he was done. To me, that just exemplifies, if the Dodgers lose this World Series, that Dave Roberts is not the manager for the Dodgers moving forward. I think he's a really good manager, but these kind of decisions are decisions managers do not make, least of all in the World Series. You just can't make a decision like that. Now, let's look at the ninth inning. This was a double error. I don't know why they didn't score it like that to begin with, but when you look at the play as it transpired, and I agree with you, by the way, on that Joe Buck call. It was a really great call. Balls take a bounce whenever they're going into the outfield, depending on how the turf is, whether it's grass or turf, depending on how uneven the ground is, the balls can take a bounce no matter the turf you're playing on. The Chris Taylor bobble, when he was going to the ball, I'm not going to say he was lackadaisical going to the ball, but I think he definitely misjudged the bounce, and that's why that bobble happened. But he still got the ball. He threw it home. He threw it to Muncie as the cutoff man, and then Muncie threw it to home to Will Smith. Now, looking at this play, I was watching, again, I've watched this, like you said. I've watched this close to 30 times. I'm probably exaggerating by a couple, but no matter, I've watched it a bunch. The more I watch it, the more I was really looking at the positioning of Kenley Jansen. Whenever a play like that transpires, your pitcher is always told to go home to back up the catcher in case some miscue happens. And where was Kenley Jansen where the, when this play happened? He was dawdling around next to Randy Rosarena. Now, I get it to a degree. Randy Rosarena was caught in no man's land when that play was going on. Jansen was probably positioned next to Rosarena to potentially get him in a pickle and get him out. Boom. Game's over. Inning's over, I mean. Move on to the next inning. But instead, that didn't happen. And Will Smith bobbled the ball. It went behind Will Smith. And Kenley Jansen still didn't do anything. He was still standing there. I didn't see the urgency to run toward home plate to realize, oh, wait a minute. Will Smith is probably going to run toward the ball. He's going to throw it back to me. I need to make the play at home. If there is a play at home, that didn't happen. So when you look at this, and going into the play, it was a one-two count with two outs. Jansen had one more pitch to make. He left a hanging curve, an indoor curve, not curve, a cutter, I mean. And everything happened. So when you look at this play overall, it was a loss of fundamentals. And when you look at the sixth inning, that sort of led to everything happening in the ninth inning to a degree, a loss of communication. And when you think of the Los Angeles Dodgers, you really don't think of them making basic mistakes or basic communication miscues. You don't see that from this team. There's a reason they had the best record in all of baseball. There's a reason they've always been at the top of the National League for the past seven years. There's a reason for that. It's because of sound base running, sound defense, and great communication. And I didn't see any of it in this half inning. Moving on to game five. So how are the Dodgers going to respond? Well, Clayton Kershaw is on the mound. And to many Dodger fans, they were thinking, oh, boy, it's going to be another one of those games, St. Louis Cardinals-esque. But no, actually, Clayton Kershaw actually had a pretty solid game. 
and he has two wins in the World Series, and he exited that game with a 2.31 World Series ERA. He was not the problem. In fact, the bullpen was also not that much of a problem either. There was pretty awesome, pretty sound. Dustin May, Gonzalez, and Blake Trinan closed it out after Kershaw left, and they won 4-2. to So, Sean, take me through this game. Was this a good bounce-back win for the Dodgers? Was this a good game for Dave Roberts? Take me through it. Well, the fact that the Dodgers jumped out to three runs in the first two innings was really huge. Considering that less than 24 hours ago, they had the crazy ending. It was a really great bounce back performance and they really seemed to be on the same page there. Like, like you said, communication was improved. And yes, leave it to Johnny Crane to preaching about communication like he always does. I just, just got to point that out. But as far as as far as Dave Roberts go, he did pull Clayton. He did play pull Clayton Kershaw. But why would you do it after he got out two batters on two pitches out in the same inning? That was a weird decision. Yes, it worked out, and they got out of the inning without any damage. But that was a really weird decision. Also, they had a four-two lead the last few innings which the bullpen did well but why wasn't bruce dark gratterall the closer why was it blake trinan the guy who gave up the home run to austin riley in game one of the nlcs that was also another very puzzling decision so while the dodgers came through and did what they had to do still some very questionable decisions from dave roberts Gratterall has been absolutely dynamite. I don't think he's given up a run this postseason. He has been absolutely phenomenal. His his fastballs are nearly unhittable. There's just so much heat on them. Blake Trinan is solid. He was a solid closer for the for the Oakland Athletics. But like I said, he gave up a winning home run to Austin Riley. And you're going to throw him in there at the bottom of the ninth inning? Oh, and by the way, Trinan has not made a postseason save in his career. Not one. And you're going to throw him in there in the bottom of the ninth? Okay, it's, it's a bold strategy, Cotton. But, yeah, it's, it was a very questionable move from Dave Roberts. But, hey, it worked out. They did what they had to do, and Dave Roberts got away with it. But I think it just goes to show how the Dodgers – Scoring three runs in the first two innings showed that, hey, we're not going to just fold after game four. The fact that they were able to bounce back like this is a very telling sign of how good the Dodgers are, how much better they are in a lot of areas than Tampa Bay, and how if they can just take care of business tonight, they will be World Series champions. Yeah, on paper, there were a lot of questionable decisions. The one decision you didn't mention that I actually wanted to hit on was the usage of Dustin May. Dustin May went an inning and two-thirds. He looked really good, actually. I thought he probably could have went another inning. So instead of going with Victor Gonzalez in the following to close out that inning and for the inning after, I thought you probably could have left Dustin May in. The only thing that I think makes sense with the moves you mentioned and the move I mentioned with Dustin May is the fact that Dave Roberts is saving his chips for tonight's game. And again, depending on when you're watching and listening to this, folks, game six is tonight. 
So I was thinking possibly what they're doing is they're saving Kenley Jansen, number one. They're saving Dustin May, number two. And they're preserving, at least to a degree, the pitchers you mentioned as well, Bruce Dargratterall in particular. Because hypothetically, in game six, say the starter only goes four or five, you bring in those relievers on a matchup basement. And with that involved, instead of using Dustin May for an extra inning in the in the previous game, you can use that inning he was going to pitch in that game in this game instead. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. And that's kind of the issue I have with Dave Roberts. Now, Dave Roberts is going to stick with his guys. He likes to put his guys in a good position to succeed. Now, some of those positions, like you mentioned, Blake Trine has never had a save before in, the, in this particular kind of game. But he puts his players in certain positions to succeed, even if they haven't done it before. If it works, it's a really good intangible and morale thing for the players. If it doesn't work, well, you get the controversy that the Pedro Baez thing in particular brings. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. But regardless of the decision, the Dodgers won that game 4-2. to two. And really what I want to hit on is the lineup for the Dodgers before we move on. When you look at Corey Seager, Justin Turner, and Max Muncy, when you look at the latter two in particular, Justin Turner and Max Muncy, going into the World Series, they were kind of scuffling. You know, Max Muncy had some walks here and there. Justin Turner had some nice defensive plays. He had a good eye, but he wasn't really hitting the ball. He wasn't finding the gaps. He wasn't hitting any doubles or extra base hits, which is what Justin Turner is known for. Max Muncy really wasn't hitting the bombs that he's known for. But when you look at these two players in the postseason, especially in the World Series, the World Series numbers are by far and large better than the previous postseason matchups. All three, Seager, Turner, and Muncy, all have an, a World Series OPS of over 1,000. If you can have an OPS over 1,000 from three of your batters in the middle of your order, that's really, really good. And it goes back to the day of Roberts trusting his guys thing. Going into the World Series, people thought, okay, maybe he'll move Justin Turner down in the lineup. Turner was hitting third throughout the postseason. Again, he wasn't hitting well. Maybe it's time for a change. But no, he kept Justin Turner in the three-hole, and look what happened. Justin Turner finally is hitting like the postseason Justin Turner has in the past. So when you stick with your guys at times, it pays off. And I think from an offensive standpoint, it has definitely paid off for the Dodgers. So if those three can keep on hitting, if Bellinger can hit a bomb here and there, if the bottom of the order can make the pitchers work, for their outs that the Dodgers have done, then the Dodgers are going to be in a very prime position to win game six of the World Series, no matter what pitcher is put on the mound. Because if you can make a pitcher work like they did Tyler Glass now, that's really good because you can knock the pitcher out early. And if that other team you're facing, if their particular strength comes in their bullpen, well, you're seeing their bullpen that much earlier, which gives you much more opportunity to find a matchup in your favor and to eliminate the strength and get to the bullpen, which in under any other normal circumstances, if the starter goes six or seven innings, you might not have that opportunity to do. So overall, I think game five for the Dodgers, even though there were some questionable decisions, I think the decisions might make sense depending on what happens in game six and how Dave Roberts utilizes his lineup and utilizes his bullpen. So I think that'll be the key for that game. So, Sean, that leads me to the final thing. 
Game six is tonight. Again, folks, depending on when you're listening, game six might have already happened. But game six, who do you have? I think the Dodgers closed this out. I think game five was the pivotal win the Dodgers needed. 2017 World Series, game five did not go the Dodgers way. And at the time was considered a baseball classic. It isn't now because of obvious cheating scandals. But this time the Dodgers have the 3-2 advantage. And I think that the that the Dodgers have the momentum. They figured it out. Let me point, let me make this comparison because you know I love to make historical comparisons. That's what I do. 2013 World Series, Boston Red Sox against the St. Louis Cardinals. The St. Louis Cardinals won game three on one of the craziest World Series endings ever. It was the obstruction call at the end of game three. Where where the Red Sox had the winning run, but it was called back because of an obstruction call. So great job, Red Sox. So they lost that game. Cardinals went up two to one, but they didn't win after that. The next game, Colton one was picked off and the game was over and the Red Sox won from there because the Red Sox were simply the better team in that World Series. And I think that's the same case here. I think the Dodgers have been the better team in this World Series aside from game two. And I think that the pitching for the Dodgers really steps up tonight. It's, and as good as Blake Snell is, he's never really been in this much of a pressure spot. And I just, ha- I just have this gut feeling that the Dodgers are going to go all out to make sure they don't force the game seven. They've been there. They went there three years ago. They don't want to see that again. Yes, if I'm a Dodgers fan, I would feel good about game seven because of Walker Buehler being the starter. And he has been absolutely, absolute money, but... Again, that's a bit of a pressure pack situation. They want to close this out. They had to play against Atlanta in game seven. They don't want to, they don't want to play another game seven here. So I think they close it out just barely. The Rays are going to give a fight. And I'm just going to quickly say this, regardless of what happens tonight and if there's a game seven, the Tampa Bay Rays have earned the respect of every baseball fan in the country. They have been, they have been a joy to watch. They have they have played baseball the right way. They're they have they have made small markets that they, they've given hope to small markets once again. And they have been, they've been a great story. And it, I'm very glad that they were the ones that came out of the American league. They were the right teams to come out of the American league. So whatever happens tonight, props, props to them for a fantastic season. They should hold their heads high that they, they, they should be set up to win in the AL East the next few years. Sorry, Orioles fans. Yeah, even as an Orioles fan, when you look at the rest of the AL East, the New York Yankees, no. The Boston Red Sox, no. The Toronto Blue Jays, fat chance. I'm never going to root for any of them. And really, I'm not going to root for Tampa Bay either. But at least with Tampa Bay, I can respect them. Because when you look at their team, as you mentioned, a super small market market team, bottom three payroll practically every single year, their stadium leaves a lot to be desired. I'll just leave it at that. They draft well, they trade well, they develop well. And I think that's the big thing. You have to have a really good farm system and a really good developmental staff to really develop those farm players. Because if you don't, then your small market philosophy practically goes out the window because you're key way to bring in good players is by developing. And if you can't develop, you're going to be left in a bad spot. They pitch really, really well. And they develop all of those pitchers very well, no matter if it's in a relief role or a starting role or an opening role. 
they use the numbers, they put in matchups that benefit them a lot more effectively than I think a lot of other teams do, even though a lot of other teams bring in a lot of matchups too. So I think overall from Kevin Cash, from the front office to the farm system, from the developmental staff, all of it is really good. And that's why you see Tampa Bay being as good as they are. And this is why you'll see Tampa Bay, maybe not in the World Series next year. It's really hard to get to the World Series in consecutive years, but they're definitely going to make a run for it. So I think overall you have to give props to Tampa Bay. As for my prediction for game six, I think the Dodgers close it out too. I'm not going to say it's going to be a blowout in LA's favor, but I think they win this by not a hefty margin, but a reasonable margin. So I think around two, three, four runs. Cause I think they're going to come out early. Blake Snell has been really good. I think out of all the starters and pitchers that Tampa Bay has had, I think Blake Snell has shown the most upside and overall filth that I think a lot of the other starters might not have. So I think, even with that said, I think that the Dodgers can work the count. And if they can work the count and knock Blake Snell out relatively early, Blake Snell in the past has had issues with pitch counts. If they can do that relatively early and get to that bullpen, it's only going to benefit the Dodgers as the game progresses. So I think the Dodgers do close this out too. I think they score a good amount of runs. And I think they limit the runs by Tampa Bay well enough to not make it as much of a nail biter as previous games have been in the past for the Dodgers. So I think the Dodgers close it out as well. Shifting gears to the NFL for a couple topics real quick. The NFC. Now we know the NFC East is nothing but not that good. Let's just leave it like that. But when you look at the rest of the teams in that conference, Sean, when you think of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, yes, we're sticking with the Tampa Bay theme. When you think of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, are they the most complete team out of the NFC? What do you see upside-wise from that team compared to other NFC teams? Are they the team to beat? Well, first of all, yes. The NFC East is absolutely terrible. The Cowboys are down to the third-string quarterback. And the Washington football team has the top total defense in the NFL because they, they keep beating up on other NFC East teams. It is a disaster. But Tampa Bay Buccaneers, yeah, yeah, they're, they're the team to beat. As much as a part of me really doesn't want to admit it, and I wish the Raiders would have beaten them, to be perfectly honest, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are the best all-around team. They smoked the Green Bay Packers 38-10, to 10, so that settles that debate. I don't need to go into those two teams. Tampa Bay settled that debate right there. They they smoked them. They 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 ran Green Green Bay to to the to the Gulf of Mexico. It was that bad. Thirty eight unanswered points. And as for Seattle, Seattle, have you seen every Sunday night game the Seahawks have played? It has been an instant classic, and they can't cover anybody. They can't stop anybody. Despite Russell Wilson just being incredible, yes, he did have a few tournaments against the Cardinals, but the Seahawks defense literally cannot stop anyway. Jamal Adams has still been out. He's only played two games this season. So that is very unfortunate for them. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are top 10 in defense, which I cannot believe considering that their secondary has been off over the years. But Jamel Dean and Antoine Winfield Jr., a couple rookies have really bolstered the secondary to one of the, I can't believe I'm saying this, one of the NFL's best. When I have watched like on ball secondary coverage 
which has been god-awful in the NFL this year, the Buccaneers have been there making a lot of plays. The, the, Buccan, the Buccaneers secondary is aggressive, and they're actually covering wide receivers, which most of the NFL cannot seem to do nowadays. And their, pat, their front seven is very good. Devin White's closing speed, good Lord. See that play on Derek Carr where he just tracked down Carr before he got the first down just whammed him? Wow. And yeah, that, that guy was on LSU at one point, which, which he was an absolute stud, as you know. Yeah, the, the Buccaneers are the most complete team. And oh, by the way, Tom Brady is still throwing dimes out here. He threw five touchdown passes against the Las Vegas Raiders. I almost said the Oakland Raiders there. And while their receiving core has made a Chris Gunson, they got Antonio Brown. Well, I swear, this is this is becoming the NFL equivalent of Thanos assembling the Infinity Gauntlet. Just weapon after weapon. But what's the ultimate weapon? None other than Tom Brady's favorite target, Rob Gronkowski. Gronkowski, in the last couple games, have really started to break out as a lethal weapon once again. The fact that Brady and Gronk duo is back is absolutely terrifying. As a diehard Patriots fan, I know all about how great Brady and Gronk are together. I know all about that. That that basically def- that those those two's combination basically defines my sports life. And to see them doing it with the Buccaneers, and the fact the Buccaneers have a legit defense is absolutely terrifying for the rest of the NFL. They would have beaten the Chicago Bears if they didn't if they didn't shoot themselves in the foot with penalties every other drive. And week one against the Saints, they, they just weren't ready yet. They didn't have a preseason. And the Saints came out fine. The Saints actually had Michael Thomas at the time when he wasn't when he wasn't punching opposing players in the in the face. So yeah, the, the Buccaneers, they're they have a top 10 defense. Tom Brady's dropping dies, and Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette have been a lethal one-two combination in the backfield. I really, really want to see in the playoffs Tampa Bay play Seattle because Tom Brady and Russell Wilson would just be the perfect – I think that would be the perfect NFC Championship game. I, I would love to see those two battle once again like they did in the greatest Super Bowl of all time known as Super Bowl Forty Nine. So, yeah. Tampa Buccaneers are the most complete team in the NFC. They should be taken seriously. That they are absolutely terrifying. Oh wait a minute, man! Oh boy, I thought Sean was about to go onto a soapbox, and his fandom for New England was about to show out again. It was, they were showing glimpses of it when you're talking about Brady and Gronk. But let's get back to the Bucks. You pretty much hit it on the head for practically every single point that I'm going to bring up. But I'm just going to reiterate. It's weapons galore for the Bucks, And it's actually very interesting considering the fact that, yes, they have Ronald. Yes, they have Fournette. Yes, they have Miller. They have Gronk. They have Evans. They're about to get Antonio Brown. But even with all those weapons, they arguably could have had more if injuries didn't happen. They lost Howard for the year. Godwin has been hurt. So even with those injuries, they still have enough weapons for Tom Brady to succeed. And I think that's really good because not only do they have weapons up close, they have the ground and pound running backs in Fournette and Jones, but they also have the receivers and tight ends to really lengthen the field and lengthen out opposing defenses. And the problem with Tom Brady last year was, well, he probably has a good arm, but he doesn't have the weapons to throw to. But when you look at Tom Brady with weapons, even though he's well over 40 years old now, 
he still has enough arm strength to really make down the field passes and those short passes as well, which keeps the defense and the secondary as a whole honest. And I think if you can spread the defense out with the air raid kind of style that Bruce Arians brings as head coach of the Bucks, that's a really good sign. But I think the surprise, and as you mentioned, it has to be the defense. And really, it's not so much the front seven. The front seven last year for Tampa Bay was actually pretty solid. They had some nice sacking power. They tackle very well. But this season, that strength from last season has transferred over quite well. They still tackle. They still sat. Devin White actually leads the team in tackles out of everybody else. So I think that's really good. They have depth there. They can really get to the quarterback, and they really got to Aaron Rodgers a couple weeks ago. And they got to Derek Carr, as you mentioned. So quarterbacks are going to be fearful going into any game, going up against that front seven. But the surprise to me is that secondary. And I thought going into the season that the secondary would improve, and it definitely has improved. And as you mentioned, Sean, it has to be the aggression that has really seen this unit improve exponentially. They have more interceptions than anyone in the league, except for the Colts. The Colts have 10. The Buccaneers have nine. Now, the Buccaneers are tied with a few other teams for nine. But the fact that we're talking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers intercepting and having a solid and aggressive secondary, if you said that a year ago, I'll have what you're having, please. I don't know what you're getting at the bar, but give me that. It sounds pretty strong. Let me have that. And I think when you look at their secondary unit, Antoine Winfield Jr., Carlton Davis, Mike Edwards, the other players you mentioned, the thing that really stands out to me, and maybe we didn't give Tampa Bay enough credit last year. Yes, their secondary was subpar last year, but maybe that came from just the inexperience. When you look at all the explosive players on the secondary for Tampa Bay, all of them pretty much have less than three years of experience at the NFL level. They're all relatively young. They have high upside. And maybe just now they're finding their group. Maybe just now they're finding that aggression. Maybe just now they're finding that great coverage that leads to explosive plays because they're not just stopping the ball. They're not just preventing the wide receivers and tight ends and running backs from making plays. They're making the plays themselves. The secondary, as I mentioned, they're intercepting the ball. They're making explosive plays. There's a difference between a good defense and an aggressive defense. And to me, Aggressive defenses are what truly wins championships on the defensive side of the ball. That's what makes the Pittsburgh Steelers so scary. That's what can make the Kansas City Chiefs even scarier that we've seen this year. That's what made the Baltimore Ravens scary in years past. So if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to make a run for the NFC title, I think they had to have an aggressive secondary, and they definitely have it. But even when you compare Tampa Bay to the rest of the NFC, well, I think just from an overall complete standpoint, I think they definitely take the cake easily. Let's just go through some of the other teams, shall we? The Seattle Seahawks, defensive issues, secondary issues, even with Jamal Adams. Green Bay, well, they got demolished by Tampa Bay several weeks ago. But the problem with Green Bay that I think is their lack of weapons. Does Aaron Rodgers have enough weapons to really lengthen the secondary out? I don't think so. The Arizona Cardinals, youth. They had never been on the stage before. Can they perform at the postseason? The Chicago Bears, well, we saw Monday Night Football. They don't have the offense either. The San Francisco 49ers, hell, they've been destroyed by injuries. Can those injury bugs really be overcome? I don't think so. The Los Angeles Rams, they've been a little inconsistent. They have debt issues as well. 
So I think overall, from a depth standpoint, from an upside standpoint, from an experience standpoint, I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have to be the team that people have to look at and teams have to look at to really say, you know what? They should be the NFC favorites for the Super Bowl. And that's a very crazy thing to say, but I think just from the overall roster construction, you have to think about it. And I think you have to realistically say that is the case. I am not surprised. I am not surprised. You also agree considering you've been on, you've been on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers hype train ever since they got Tom Brady. You wrote an article for the Rich Report about a week or two after they signed Tom Brady saying, welcome to Tampa Brady or Tampa Brady, whichever, whichever one it was. But it is well-deserved. They are frightening. And I, I love seeing an aggressive secondary because I cannot stand soft defenses just allowing easy completions all game long. It is, it is a pet peeve of mine in the NFL, and the Buccaneers are not one of those teams that allow that. It is very satisfying to see. Also, Gronk, very- spike, also, also Gronk spikes are great, too, as much as okay. that he's not doing it on my team. Because my oh, team is yeah. terrible right now. Okay, settle down there, Patriots fan. I told you you're not going to go on your Patriots fandom, and we're not going to – no, no, no. Let's move on real quick. <laughs> so one of the pet peeves I have, and a very unfortunate thing that has happened a lot this season, has been injuries to star players. And another star player hit the dust with a season-ending injury this past week. Odell Beckham Jr. tore his ACL and is out for the year. Baker Mayfield threw a interception, and it will be Jay tried to defend the interception, but he got injured, and now he's out for the year. So now the question arises, you know, when OBJ came onto the scene in the NFL those so many years ago, he made the catch with the New York Giants. He was a very young, up-and-coming player, but now you look at him with all these injuries, all the inconsistencies, all the chemistry issues, all the player personality issues he's brought And now with this torn ACL, instead of him being 22-23, he's now 28-29, about to be 30 soon over the next couple of years. So, Sean, my question to you is, are we ever going to see that explosive OBJ again? Will it be with the Cleveland Browns? Will it be with another team? Have we seen the peak of OBJ, although so many years ago? Is this it for him? He had a season-ending ankle injury in 2017. Now he has a torn ACL in 2020. I sadly think that his prime is dwindling. I still think he's going to be a solid receiver when he comes back, but hes I don't think he's going to have the same explosion that he had considering his second season-ending injury. And on top of you know his lack of, let's just say, what's the word for it, integrity, Discipline. There we go. That's the word. Discipline. I think that OBJ is really going to start to fade after this year. This was a very unfortunate injury to see. And honestly, OBJ, he, I just don't think he's going to be the same. He had mentally he hasn't been the same since the Josh Norman game in 2015, which is still one of the craziest NFL regular season games of all time. Cause what on earth was that? But OBJ I, I don't see him being as explosive considering he's starting to get a bit older and he's had a second season in the injury. It's a tough blow. It's really unfortunate, but it is, it is what it is. I hope he comes back strong, but I don't really see it realistically happening considering this is his second major injury. 
before I say my segment on OBJ, we have some breaking news, actually, from Ian Rappaport. Sean, have you seen it? I have seen it. Okay. So, the news. Cowboys defensive end, Everson Griffin, is no longer a Cowboy. He is now a Detroit Lion. Sean, take it away. What do you think of this trade? So, Everson Griffin for the Dallas Cowboys has been traded to the Detroit Lions in an exchange for draft compensation. We don't know exactly what the oh it's it's now a conditional six round pick so that's a solid move for the detroit lions the detroit lions have a a decent defense it's a mediocre defense they have had some light competition this season and they bolstered their pass rush and i think this is a solid addition for the detroit lions as they're in the midst of a, of a wild card contention now they they allowed us all to laugh at the Atlanta Falcons as the Falcons choked again. Like, sorry, I cannot keep a straight face. See, the Atlanta Falcons just continue to make us all laugh and have so much joy as they choke. And the Lions benefited, even though they're the ones that choked week one against the Chicago Bears. They're three and three. They won back-to-back road games. And now their pass rush has been bolstered. And by the time that this podcast is posted, I will have a briefing on this trade for thecandyclark.com. So be sure to check that out. Yeah, I think this is a good trade for the Lions. When you compare the NFC to the AFC, I think the AFC is a lot deeper, a lot stronger. And when you compare it to the NFC, I think the NFC, aside from Tampa Bay that we already mentioned, there really isn't a quote-unquote complete team. And while Everson Griffin definitely does not make the Detroit Lions a, quote, complete team, it gives them a chance to compete against a lot of the other teams in the NFC that also bring flaws to the table. Look, the Lions have flaws themselves. No one's going to discount that. But with this move, it gives them the opportunity to compete a little bit better. And with the playoff format this year, seeing an expanded format with another team making it in, maybe they have a shot to make it. From the Cowboys' perspective at this point, what this tells me as a Cowboys fan is the rebuild might be on. Might. I'm not going to say is on. There are other players they could possibly trade to really define whether it's a rebuild. But what they're telling me is that time for next year, we're going to probably throw in the towel this year. We're going to try to get draft picks when we can, restart the defense, maybe get some young players in the draft stockpile the picks that's really what it boils down to and that's what the cowboys got it wasn't a first rounder it wasn't a second rounder but griffin was never ever going to give you that in a million years it gives you a conditional pick i'm all for it rebuild was probably needed for a year or so so we'll see what happens but yeah going back to the obj topic you pretty much hit the nail on the head sean because you know you're the nfl guy you pretty much hit the nail on everything related to nfl OBJ, when he came into the league, as, as, as I know from an LSU fan, really explosive guy. And he was really explosive at LSU, considering the fact that up to that point, LSU really didn't have a solidified explosive quarterback. And even without that explosive quarterback, he was still able to make those great routes, those great catches, those great touchdown drives. So when he came into the league, I thought, well, he'll probably do the same thing. But with all the injuries, with the chemistry issues, with the intangible factor, netted into the numbers factor there was reason for concern and even over the past couple years I think the intangible factor of the chemistry and the personality so to speak I think has actually kind of improved I think he's been a lot better I think he's matured a lot more 
But unfortunately, maturity and those intangibles cannot take away the health issues. Ankle issue, issue, now an ACL tear. At some point, I think he will come back. I think he definitely will. But will he be that out route? Will he be that vertical pass catcher that can really make the explosive plays with the dynamic speed down the field? I'm not too sure. And depending on how long it takes for him to recover from the injury, we probably might have seen his last tenure as a Cleveland Brown. I think that when you look at OBJ with the Browns, I always thought he was going to take off with them. And I think he was very close to taking off with them this year, even with the lack of receptions and targets. I think he was very close. I think he was about to find that chemistry with Baker Mayfield. But unfortunately, he will not find that chemistry now. I think with that said, I think he will definitely not be a Cleveland Brown when he eventually comes back, even with the contract taken into account. Where he goes, I'm not too sure. A team will definitely take a flyer on him, but they're not going to take a flyer on him knowing he's going to be their wide receiver one. He's going to go to a team where they have some depth in case OBJ does not pan out. And as he gets older, potentially, by the time he comes back from this injury, will be midway through next season. And by that point, he'll be 29-ish, almost going to be 30. So you have to question whether that speed will be there, whether that explosiveness will be there. And it's a very unfortunate thing. It is a tough thing in any sport, especially in football. Injuries can derail a player so, so much in such a physical sport. And it unfortunately happened to OBJ. So I hope, I wish him all the best in his recovery. And I hope he comes back full guns up blazing for either the Cleveland Browns or for another team. I agree. I hope I hope he does come back well, and let's let's see if he stays clean. I think he possibly can because he he is has guaranteed money through the next few years, and because he has season-ending injury, they wouldn't get much for him. So I think they possibly give it another shot, but it wouldn't surprise me either way. That will conclude episode fourteen of Ahead of the Count. I wish your host Johnny Crane joined by my. Great co-host, Sean Clark. Sean, thank you for joining me, as always. Be sure to tune in next week for episode 15, where Sean will be hosting, I will be co-hosting. Until then, folks, stay safe, stay sound, and we'll see you then. Later.